Well, welcome to the Hills. If you were with us last week for our Easter services, I'm so glad you came back as we start this new series, Home is Coming. And I want to begin with one of my favorite stories about one of my favorite people. Some years back, Charlotte, North Carolina businessmen wanted to honor their most famous citizen, Billy Graham. He did not want to be honored, but they persuaded him to come and say, all you need to do is make a few remarks. And so after a period of deserved praises for Dr. Graham, he stood up and he said, um, I am reminded of a story they tell about Albert Einstein, the brilliant scientist that Time Magazine called the man of the century. He got on a train in Princeton and the man came by to get the ticket. Dr. Einstein looked into his vest pocket. He couldn't find the ticket. He looked into his other pocket. He looked into his briefcase. He looked on the seat beside him. The conductor said, that's okay, Dr. Einstein. I know who you are. I'm sure you bought a ticket. And he went on down the aisle. He looked back a moment later and there was the old scientist on his hands and knees looking beneath the bench. He came back and rushed and said, Dr. Einstein, that's okay. I know who you are. You don't need a ticket. And the old man looked up and said, son, I too know who I am. What I don't know is where I'm going. Okay, so since the beginning of history, the prophets and the poets and the philosophers have been trying to answer the three ultimate questions. Where did we come from? Why are we here? And where are we going? Now, people create what I would call a worldview to answer those three questions. Now, if you choose a mechanistic worldview, that there is no God, there is no supernatural, that we're just simply here by random chance, if that is your worldview, and that's how you answer the first question, you understand you have inevitably answered the next two questions, that there is no ultimate meaning and we go nowhere simply return back to dust. And I know people like to push back against that, but I am grateful for this new generation of strident atheists who are boldly asserting the implications of that particular worldview. For example, recently, a highly regarded science magazine called New Scientist had an article on these questions, particularly, what is the meaning of life? And here's what the author said. The harsh answer is, it has none. Your life may feel like a big deal to you, but it's actually a random blip of matter and energy in an uncaring and impersonal universe. When it ends, a few people will remember you for a while and they will die too. Even if you make the history books, your contribution will soon be forgotten. Humans will go extinct. Earth and sun will be destroyed. Eventually the universe itself will end. Against this appalling reality, how can a human life have any real meaning? Now, I realize that sounds kind of despairing, but I love it that they're honest about the implication of that worldview. I push back against the secularist who wants to say, well, that's what I believe, that I'm just a random uh, clump of carbon, but life has meaning and we all ought to adhere to a certain moral sense of ought. Why? No, ought and meaning are off the table. If you answer the first question, we're total random accidents. But we don't want to believe that, do we? Even secularists don't want to believe that life has no purpose and no meaning. And I think there's a reason why. Because I believe all human beings are made in the image of God. And long ago, the teacher said this in the book of Ecclesiastes, that God has planted eternity 
in the human heart. I believe that's why anthropological evidence suggests that whenever you study a culture in ancient times to today, they always seem to have an innate sense of the hereafter. Now, it's no surprise to you. I hold a Christian worldview. I would answer those questions. I was created by God. My purpose is to live my life to the glory of God, and I am going to meet God. And what we're going to do in this series is we're going to explore the third question. So where are we going? What is waiting for us after this life? And we're going to begin by just looking at the words of Jesus. Because think about it. If what we claimed last week is true, that Jesus Christ lived, that he died, and he now lives again, then who is more qualified than Jesus to talk about here and the hereafter. And here's the one thing that Jesus made very clear. Eternity is sure. See, Jesus did more than just preach ethics. He did more than just preach a gospel of life advancement. He consistently urged all of us to live our life in view of the next life. Now, Jesus affirmed all of the Bible's metaphors about the brevity of life. When the Bible talks about how long we live, it uses words like vapor, shadow, breath, grass, mist. Here's the thing. We can work out. We can have elective surgery. We can uh, do all the things that we want to do to put off death. But no matter how hard we try to run away from death, death is faster. Unless you are or Elvis, you are going to die, okay? So Jesus affirmed that, the brevity of life, but he also affirmed an existence after this life that will not be brief. And he said wise people recalibrate their priorities here in light of the here after. I could give you dozens and dozens and dozens of verses from Jesus about this. I just want to show you one from each gospel. Let's start with Matthew. And one of the very first sermons that Jesus preached, we call it the Sermon on the Mount. He ends the section called the Beatitudes with these words, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. And I notice, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. Jesus argued, it is okay here to endure a life of suffering and persecution because of the reward in the hereafter. Let's go to the Gospel of Mark. Okay, so some religious leaders who don't believe in life after this life were testing Jesus. In a way, they were trash-talking Jesus and mocking him with the question about a woman who had been married seven times. Who is she going to be married to in the hereafter? Now, remember, these are the religious scholars of the day, and notice how Jesus talks to them. Your mistake is that you don't know the Scriptures, and you don't know the power of God. For when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. In this respect, they will be like the angels in heaven. But now, as to whether the dead will be raised, haven't you ever read about this in the writings of Moses? In the story of the burning bush, long after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died, God said to Moses, I am the God 
of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So he's not the God, uh, so he is the God of the living, not the dead. You've made a serious error. Side note, don't trash talk Jesus. It'll never turn out well. You notice what Jesus is saying. It's not like I just brought a new teaching, there's life after this life. Jesus says, no, let's go all the way back to the start of the Bible. There is life after this life. He's the God of the living. Let's go to the book of Luke. Jesus has sent his disciples out on a mission trip. They preach the gospel. They heal the sick. They're particularly excited that they cast out demons, which is something that they could and we could do today in the power of the Spirit. But notice Jesus says, don't rejoice because evil spirits obey you. Rejoice because your names are registered in heaven. That's the big win. And finally, in the gospel of John, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. They will never be condemned for their sins, but they have already passed from death into life. We're going to come back to John 5 in just a moment. But here's the big idea I want you to get. Jesus consistently said, it's only a fool that would not be living this life in light of the next life that we live here in view of the hereafter. Um, you've heard me many times mention a man named Dallas Willard. For 50 years, he taught philosophy at the University of Southern California. But more than that, he probably shaped this generation of pastors' views of discipleship more than any author I know. His mother died when he was two years old. Her last words to her husband were, keep eternity before the children. What incredible wisdom. Raise our children to live here in view of the hereafter. That is pure Jesus. And so I want to dig down a little deeper. Jesus said three things especially about the hereafter. And here's number one. Everybody goes somewhere after here. Now, one thing you have to admit about Jesus, he never adapted his theology to please people. He never said, before I say this, how will people respond to it? He never compromised truth to avoid controversy. And that includes the way he answered the third question. And so, what happens after this life? Let's go back to John 5. Don't be so surprised. Indeed, the time is coming when all the dead in their graves will hear the voice of God's Son, and they will rise again. Those who've done good will rise to experience eternal life, and those who have continued in evil will rise to experience judgment. Here's what Jesus is saying. Everybody will have a next life, but the next life will not be the same for everybody. You see, when it comes to eternity, Jesus didn't just preach half the truth. In so many of his parables about the next world and the next life, he has it inaugurated with a separation. Do you notice, for example, that there are 
wheat and tares, and they're going to be separated. Uh, that uh, in the net there are good fish and bad fish, and they're going to be separated. Uh, that there are sheep and there are goats, and they're going to be separated. Jesus was not unclear about this, even if it makes us uncomfortable to think about it. Here's the thing. No one talked about the possibility that some will spend their eternity without God more than Jesus. No one. Now, there's a lot of opinions about what hell is like, and we're not going to get into all that. Here's all I know. Whatever hell is, God is not there. And Jesus was very clear about that. And I think maybe the reason Jesus talked about it more than anyone else is because no one else who's ever lived understood, understands the horror of being abandoned or forsaken by God. Now, I'm going to get real honest with you. I planned this series long before I knew there would be a pandemic. I planned to start the series by talking about this very grave truth that everybody has a next life, but it's not the same life for everybody. And then the pandemic hit. And I began to wonder, is this how I should begin this series? So a couple of weeks ago, I was taking a walk with my wife, Jamie. We've been trying to go on a long walk every day because we're allowed to do that. And by the way, we are not socially distancing, I'll confess, because, well, she's just so attracted to me. What am I supposed to do? And so we're talking. And I was saying, Jamie, I'm not sure if I should begin my series on heaven by talking about the reality of hell and that people don't have the same next life. And she rebuked me and she said, absolutely, you need to talk about it. We're in a time right now where people are being faced with immortality. This is a season for a wake-up call. People need to get right with God. And, and I felt convicted by her words, and I still feel that conviction today. Jesus taught that everyone has an appointment with God in the hereafter, and there will be no excused absences. And only a fool would live out of line with that truth. But Jesus also taught that it was an appointment that could be anticipated with excitement. Yes, everybody goes somewhere after here, but anybody can go to hereafter to be with God. Anybody. So when uh, Calvin Coolidge was vice president, he was presiding over a debate in the Senate that got rather heated. One senator said to another, you can go straight to hell. And the offended senator turned to Coolidge and said, did you hear that? And Coolidge looked up and said, I've been reading the rule book and it says you don't have to go. See, Jesus came to reveal that God is for us, each one of us. Don't ever lose the wonder of John 3, 16. For this is how God loved the world, the world, that He gave His one and only Son so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. You see, today, Christianity is often criticized as being too exclusive. But do you know that in Jesus' day, the single criticism he got more than any other was that he was too inclusive. 
that in his movement there was room for anyone at the table that was hungry for God. You're a tax collector, you can come to the table. Prostitute, you can come to the table. Samaritan, you can come to the table. That it didn't matter your ethnicity, it didn't matter your sex, it didn't matter your background, it didn't matter your past track record. Anybody hungry for God is welcome to the table with Jesus. No one understood this more than a man that we call Paul, but in his early days was called Saul. He was so against the Jesus movement that he dedicated his life to the tur- torture, persecution, and the killing of men and women that follow Jesus. You talk about something you don't want on your resume when you meet God. But Jesus met Saul and invited him to the table. And the man that we now call Paul wrote these words. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. You know why this is true? Because there is more grace in God than there is sin in you. And let me tell you right now, if the person next to you didn't shout amen, you have my permission to throw something at them and wake them up. Because that one truth rocked my world, changed my life, and gave me the security that I was always looking for. Let me say it again. There is more grace in God than there is sin in you. So let's keep reading. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God freely and graciously declares that we're righteous. He did this through Christ Jesus when He freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed His life, shedding His blood. I read recently a brief of a scientific journal from Japan. I'm not even going to try to pronounce it. I would just mess it up. But it was talking about how researchers there are developing what they call artificial blood. Now you're aware today if someone needs a blood transfusion, you need to get the blood type right or you could have serious health consequences. And the problem is it's hard to store blood. You can only keep it so many days. You have to keep it in a very low temperature. Imagine how hard that makes it then for people that live in a far place from a hospital. Or ambulance drivers that get someone that needs blood, but they can't transfuse them in the ambulance because they don't know what their type is. These researchers in Japan are developing this blood, they say, that will fit any type of person. And it can be kept for up to a year in room temperature. Now, I don't know how true this is, but what a game changer if there was a blood that could save anybody. (laughs) Well, you already know where I'm going. There's a blood that's been around for 2,000 years that can save anybody. That anybody can have a hereafter with God. You see, the great question for your future is not, How much did you sin? Now that's what most people think. And so they think being good is good enough. As long as I didn't sin as much as most people, I'm in good shape. But that's not the question. It's not how much did you sin? The great question for the future is how much did you trust God's answer for your sin? And Jesus put it like this. He pulled no punches. 
if you do not believe that I am He, you will indeed die in your sins. I told you, Jesus didn't ask the question, how will people respond before He spoke? He didn't adapt truth to keep people happy. He said that everybody will go somewhere from here, that anybody can have a hereafter with God. But Jesus made it clear, nobody goes to God without Jesus. Do you remember the night before He died, Jesus went to a garden and He prayed. The Bible says the prayers of a righteous man are effective. Has there ever been a holier or righteous man than Jesus? And He begged God to reveal if there was any other way to offer eternal life to the world. That's why I think Jesus would find it so offensive to have people claim He's just a way to God. Why would God let Him go to a cross if that was just a way? No, that same night Jesus said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through me. And please notice, unlike other religious leaders, Jesus did not say, I show you a way. I tell you about a way. Jesus said, I am the way. I'm how you get right with God. And he made this claim consistently that a person's eternal destiny depended on whether they accepted what he said he had to do. No one's going to go to heaven on their own because everyone has sinned and they've all fallen short of the glory of God. And the only bridge that can reach God is made of blood-stained wood. That's why he came. In one of his very first public appearances, John the baptizer saw him, and this is what he said. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus came to take our hell for us so that we would not have to experience our own hell. See, I, I don't believe God sins people to hell as much as they get there on their own by walking right past the cross that God set up to keep them away. And so, back to our question. Where do we go after we die? My answer is, it depends. It depends on what you believe about Jesus. John the Apostle, his closest friend, said this, and this is what God has testified He's given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have God's Son does not have life. You can go to hell on your own, but you can't go to heaven without Jesus. That's been the burden of my heart, that He came here to take our place so that we could have a place with God in the hereafter. And I believe he was very clear. Look at John 6 with me. Jesus said, For it is my 
Father's will, that all who see His Son and believe in Him should have eternal life, I will raise them up at the last day. And that's our confident hope. In fact, I have noticed in these last number of weeks how much the threat of death paralyzes our world. And I can understand why people are afraid to die. They might be afraid of the suffering involved in the last hours of life. They would certainly fear leaving loved ones. But I think underneath all of that is a fear, what's next? And if there is a God, am I ready to meet Him? And I think throughout history, one of the most powerful apologetics and evidences for the Christian faith has been the way Christians face death. I want to show you a picture of the man considered perhaps to be the the most influential scientist of our generation. His name is Francis Collins. He was the head of the Human Genome Project. He discovered genes that have led to many significant cures of diseases. He now directs the National Institute of Health. He's an absolutely preeminently recognized scientist. And he was an atheist as a young man, ready to debate anybody about the foolishness of believing in the supernatural, that science could explain everything. But as he was in a med school, in his internship, he took care of patients, and he just noticed some could die with hope and confidence and some could not. And those that could die with hope and confidence were people of faith. He got particularly close to one older woman who was in great suffering, and yet she exuded this inexplainable serenity. And she said to him one time, I've talked to you a lot about my faith and what I believe, but I've never asked you, what do you believe? And he said that question rocked him. He'd never really investigated, what do I believe? He went and found a pastor who gave him a copy of C.S. Lewis' book, Mere Christianity, and he began to investigate. He didn't turn off his brain, he turned it on. He began to explore the incredible evidence for the veracity of Jesus and His resurrection. And at the age of 27, the greatest scientist of our generation became and still is a devoted follower of Jesus. And it is the most important question. What do you believe about Jesus? And I want you to know that I believe eternity is sure. And because of Jesus, you can be sure of your eternity. I believe with all of my heart, I am going here to hereafter with God. And Jesus has made the way. And so let's go back to the story at the very start. There was Dr. Graham in front of this great sea of people hearing him in his old age and he was wearing this suit and he said I want you to see this suit I just bought it my family says I've been too slovenly in my old age it's the first time I've ever worn this suit and I'll only wear it one more time it's the suit I'll be buried in and if you see me in that suit again I want you to know this I know who I am and I know where I'm going We're going to talk a lot in the next few weeks about heaven 
about what it might be like and what we can expect. But I start the series this way because the most important thing about heaven is not what, it's who. Who do you think Jesus is? And have you surrendered your life to Him? My wife was right. We are in a season where God is saying, wake up. This is a season to get right. None of us is going to outrun death. It's not if, it's when. And then we will meet God. And I want to meet God with Jesus standing next to me. You do too. Have you surrendered your life to Jesus? The thing that's burdened me most these last few weeks in a typical environment, I could be in a room talking straight to you and you could respond in some way. And now I'm through a lens and a screen and I've wrestled and I've made this decision. I want to ask you right now, wherever you're listening to me, if you haven't yet, to make a decision for Jesus. If you're ready to do that, I want you to pray this prayer with me. I'll say a few words, you please repeat. Let's pray this prayer together. Jesus, I confess today that you are who you claim to be, the Son of God. And today I'm putting my full trust in you to forgive my sins and make me new. My life is surrendered and belongs to you now. Amen. Jesus said, all who believe in him will not perish. They will have eternal life. We believe in our minds by accepting the claims of Christ. We believe with our lips by confessing his lordship. We believe in our bodies by being baptized. And for some of you, that's your next step. If you just prayed that prayer, here's what I want you to do. I want you to text the word surrender to the number that is on the screen right now. And one of us from church is going to contact you this week and help you make your next step of baptism. Uh, we've been actually in touch with the CDC about how we can have very safe baptisms at our campuses, or we can help you have one in your neighborhood or even in your bathtub. But that is your next step. Text that word surrender. Because the biggest question is simply, what do I believe about Jesus? And I believe He's the Son of God. He paid for my sins. And because of Him, I have a way to live with God forever. And that's what I want for you. So I'm going to pray for us right now. So dear God, I pray for all listening to my voice that we will leave this teaching today more sure than ever in the identity of Jesus and assured of our future with you because of Jesus. And for each person who just surrendered their heart to Jesus, God, in a powerful way, may your Holy Spirit move in them that they will 
truly dedicate their lives from this point forward to obedience to Jesus. Oh God, thank you for the confidence and the hope that, and even the joy that we can live with in this present here because we know the hereafter is secure. And for that hope, we praise your name through the name of Jesus. Amen.